good morning. It's great to be with you. Some of you I'm meeting for the first time, but it's really fun to be back with friends. My staff asked me where I was preaching. I'm actually out here for a, it was a sort of regional missions event and uh, yesterday in, in the area. And they were putting us in different churches in the area. And I said, well, if you're going to put us in churches, can I request Mendham? And they made that work. And the staff asked me where I was going to speak. And, um, and I said, I'm speaking at my home church, Mendham. And I, I kind of caught myself because, I mean, that hasn't been our home church for nine, ten years now. But to me, this still feels like uh, our home church. When we were sent out from Mendham, uh, the missionary journey has continued since. And so we're in a different role now. But we're still really doing missions work. We're living in Colorado, and I'll give you some updates. But this still very much feels like coming home. I'll answer the question that some of you are asking with a disappointing answer. And the question is, are Rachel and the boys here? Some of you don't know me, and you don't care. But the ones who do know me only want to see Rachel and the boys. <laughs> because the couple of people who said, like, are Rachel and the boys here? And I say, no, they just go, okay. And then they just walk away. <laughs> so I'm like, good to see you too. It's nice. Um, it's great to be here. <laughs> Uh, I will show you a picture of them. They're doing great. Um, so we're, we're, I'm connected to a lot of you on, on uh, all the social media things. But uh, Blaine's 10 years old. He's going to be 11 this year. And uh, Jude is 6. And the last time we were all here, I was trying to figure out when the last time we were all here as a family was. I think it was, I think it was four or five years ago when we were sort of on home assignment from France and that kind of thing. And uh, Jude was a little crazy dude, and now he's just a slightly bigger crazy dude. Uh, he's, he's six. Blaine is our baseball player, math mind, engineer, Lego builder kind of kid, and Jude is our party thrower, uh, art, artistic, uh, musical little guy, and that's been fun to see the different personalities develop in our kids. And um, I told, I told this story actually to some of you at the Life Conference this summer, but uh, it gives you a good picture of, of Blaine and Jude. Um, the, this happened about a year and a half ago. The, we were in a car wreck, and we were coming through an intersection, and this kid drilled us, just blindsided us, you know, uh, driving. He was a new driver, and uh, he hit into a couple of cars, and it was a huge crash. I totaled my minivan and the whole deal, and, and uh, I had you know, the airbag, like, malfunctioned, so my arm's, like, bleeding and all this stuff. We're in the middle of the intersection. So it was this big deal, and it was one of those, if you've ever been blindsided in a wreck, like, for a second, you're going, what's going on, right? After I said something that I had to ask for forgiveness for later. Um, after that part, then I was like, okay, is everybody all right? What are we doing? And, uh, and, and we had to climb out the passenger side of the car uh, because my door was all jacked up. And so we get out. And uh, we get across, and the kid's like, man, I don't know what happened. Like, I was looking at my phone, and then I hit you. And I was like, mm-hmm, thank you. Uh, it was trying to break me in my own, like, cell phone addiction, so that was good. But we're across the intersection. Blaine is, like, balled up in a, you know, in a, in a ball in the middle of the um, median there, like, crying and just kind of being like, what's going on? He was kind of, like, a little sore. You know, Rachel was trying to make sure everything was Okay. I'm bleeding, I'm talking to the cop, you know, I'm going, I'm going to have to go to the hospital because I could tell my shoulder was all jacked up, you know. And Jude goes, Dad, so does this mean we are not going roller skating? <laughs> so then I'm like, nobody, I have to go to the hospital, you know. And then he's like, start, up until that point, everything was okay, you know. 
He finds out he can't go roller skating. He's like throwing a thing. So he falls down on the ground like, no, you promised Skate City for months. You know, I'm like, oh my gosh. So that's my kids, uh, Blaine and Jude. One of them is a little bit more reserved and the other one just wants to party. That's okay. Well, I miss those guys when I'm on the road and, uh, and they're coming out with me for, for something in May. And so I'm hoping to see some of you when they come out. Blaine, I told him, we bought the tickets a couple of days ago, and I said, hey, we're going to the New York area. Like, we're going to go to New York City and all this stuff. And, and Blaine goes, I just want to see where I was born. Can I go to Morristown? I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, we'll go to Morristown. But he got this little uh, New Jersey bear this year at some random shop in Colorado where we live. And his birthday is the same day that New Jersey was founded as a state. So, like, before I came on this trip, he goes, hey, you know, Dad, New Jersey's turning 200 and whatever it is. It is 220 years this year on my birthday and all this stuff. So he's like, he feels very tied to New Jersey still, even though, you know, he was one when we left. So anyway, that's the update about Rachel and the boys. And they would have loved uh, to be here. Rachel sends her greetings to all of you too. So I'm, I'm here this morning. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of an update about what we're doing. But I'm really here to give the talk that, I've given the last couple times when I'm here, not the same exact thing. It's kind of a new version. It's a new passage that I'm preaching out of this morning for me, but it's the same talk that I felt like was happening to me when John used to call us blue chair sitters, right? Is that what he used to call us? Uh, when we were sitting in these blue chairs and coming and all that kind of stuff, and God was stirring in our hearts for mission work and that kind of thing and decided in 06 or 07, maybe we should leave, and then in 08, we went to France and God was burdening me with a call to mission that I can't release, that I've asked him to release from me, because it's not super fun or easy uh, as a call. Sort of an apostolic mission call means that you're kind of at a moment's notice ready to go where God has you, and, and it's, it's not always easy, and yet there's incredible joy and fulfillment in it. But it's the same kind of talk. So I'm, you know, I think they placed us from this missions day in area churches to talk about missions, and that's what I'm going to do. But my goal this morning is not to guilt trip you. My goal this morning is not to recruit you for what I'm doing, although if you want to, that's fine too. My goal is to encourage you that in an uncertain world, that when we flip on the TV and radio and everything, everyone is yelling at us all the time about how bad everything is, I just want to encourage you that God is on a mission that's not going to be stopped, that Jesus is not wringing his hands in heaven going, oh no, what am I going to do? In fact, he's writing an incredible story right now around the world, an incredible story of freedom and gospel power and kingdom come, because what we just sang isn't just a song for Sunday morning, but it's true. He doesn't have a rival or an equal. God and Satan aren't equal, you know, trying to figure out who wins. No, God is the victor. And so he's writing this story, but he doesn't just write a story by himself. The mystery and the testimony of Scripture from the very beginning till now is that not only is he writing a story, but he's writing us into it if we choose to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and legs to get going, to join him in what he's already doing to reconcile all humanity to himself. The beginning, I'm doing a, a read through the Bible um, plan this year. I don't always do that. Sometimes I take smaller portions of it, but I'm doing that. And when you track through the Old Testament, like from the beginning, it's, it, it's almost shocking how many times as you're reading through, God says, 
I'm the Lord, I've called you out, I'm going to be your protection, I've got enough for you, and I'm doing this for a purpose. It's not so that your name will be great, it's so my name will be great, and it's also so that you can be a testimony to all nations, to all people groups. Even when he said, look, don't defile yourself with these other people groups at the very beginning, he's going, I'm doing this for a purpose so that you can be distinct so that this story will be written for all nations. In highly charged political times, the worst part for me as a missionary is not the like, who's right, Republicans or Democrats, who's right about all this stuff, who's wrong about all this stuff. The worst part is all we talk about is ourselves. The worst part as a missionary for me is that God doesn't factor in very often unless we're talking about how God is going to make us successful. As Americans or whoever, wherever country you go, it's the same thing. It's always the same, t- same temptation to be all about you. But the story of God is, and the mission of God, is that he sends Jesus to draw people to himself to make the world right so that all people are reconciled to himself. So this morning we're going to look at a passage that's been ministering to me a lot lately called Luke, from Luke chapter 10. But before we get there, I do want to give you a little update personally for some of my friends, but also to invite some of you who uh, haven't heard about one of the things that the Christian Missionary Alliance is doing as an opportunity to engage in what God is doing. So, first of all, some of you don't know, you're new to this place, I, uh, I, I mean... You could be new, means that you started coming eight years ago but, uh, to me. Uh, but some of you might be new and not know that this church is a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, which is a network of churches that uh, is like in the 10,000s around the world. Uh, we have 2,000 churches in the U.S., and it all started right here in New York City. It all started with a guy who went, we need to be like-minded people to mobilize to the nations. And so he got a bunch of like-minded not very wealthy, kind of outcasty kind of people, and they signed up to go to places like China and India. And as I've had the opportunity to travel the world in recent years, which has been a huge blessing, I have literally met a couple of people who said, thanks to you, like I had anything to do with it, I didn't, thanks to you and your people, the Christian Mission Alliance, who brought the gospel to my people group for the very first time. In other words, we had never heard the name of Jesus until somebody got on a plane and that time a boat with a casket and came to my country to declare that Jesus is Lord. And now, in places like that, we have churches in Vietnam and, and Gabon and stuff where, where there are a million attendees to church this morning or this afternoon or wherever. That, that's a cool story. So Envision, Nancy, if you throw up that slide, is a, a ministry that um, I help lead that is a part of the larger Christian Missionary Alliance, and really we're a sort of a mission strategy of the Alliance. That's how I describe us. We're a mission strategy of the Alliance to identify the next wave of missional leaders and to help them to get developed. The next wave could be a high schooler who goes on a mission trip for the first time. Some of you have gone to Guatemala for the first and I'll reference Guatemala a lot of times uh, because it ministered to me and for many of you was completely life-changing the first time you, you got on a plane to go to Guatemala. And that's what we're going to talk about. But uh, for, for the high school student who goes with us to one of our locations or all the way up, uh, re- recently we had our record break uh, in the age, the oldest Envision intern to go for at least a year. Uh, the first one was 72, and he was really proud of that. But this year we have an 80-year-old guy in, uh, in West Africa. I've always 
joke that Envision internships start at 18 and end at death, but we haven't actually like tried that out, so I'm hoping it doesn't happen for real in Africa, but when you send an 80-year-old to West Africa, I mean, a lot can happen. Anyway, uh, he's there, and uh, uh, he's ministering well, though, and he, to me, is a missional leader who understands that if Jesus is everything to him, that he can give everything to Jesus, and he ain't done. He's got some years left. He has tons of experience, a lot more experience than most of our 18-year-olds have, and can contribute right away. And so that's what we do. So you can throw up the slides. This will take like two minutes. This is the boring part, and then we'll get to the text. So Envision is a, is a ministry or a strategy of the CNMA that identifies and develops missional leaders who really are all about the church coming alive in key urban environments. So on average per year, Envision mobilizes about 2,000 short-term trip people to about 22 locations and a couple hundred interns who go from about a month to two years. And so that's the space I live in. We have 50 full-time employees who run those locations called site coordinators or associates. And uh, they, they run those places, welcome them in, and, uh, and it's, it's a joy. Here's a, a list of some of those places just for your information. Uh, we actually should add Molly to that list. Just opened a couple of months ago in Africa. Um, the Philippines is just launching. I feel like there's a couple new ones that are in Eastern Europe. We're currently in St. Petersburg and talking about moving to Kiev. Uh, God's doing some really fun stuff. And we send out interns and, and teams to other places that aren't just our, our sites. Nancy, you can just go back to the Envision overall slide. I only show you this stuff, again, to give you a little update about what I do, but also to say this. There are some of you in the room, and I talked to a couple after the first service, who said, you know what, I might be ready to do a month somewhere, or a year, or, you know what, I have, I've had, I can't tell you the amount of conversations in the last three years that I've had with people who said, you know what, I think I'm going to sell my business. I'm 45, I'm 50, I've always felt called to unreached people or to make a difference around the world and I'm going to go and I'm going to take my kids and we're going to figure it out. There was a couple like that, Matt and Candace Scott from this really strong church. He was an engineer and in the middle of his career, 47 years old, went, I'm just going to do it. And they moved to the Middle East. They moved to Jordan. I mean, those kind of things are happening and God is writing a cool story. So if you are interested, weareenvision.com is the website and we can connect you with one of those opportunities. But I have no desire to redirect you from passion towards Guatemala or other things. My goal this morning is just to remind you that God's on a mission and to invite you to join him again. So let's look at the text. Luke chapter 10. If you do have a Bible, and I'm going to highlight some verses on the screen for us in a second. Luke chapter 10 is the first sort of mission trip that Jesus sends people out on in Scripture. He goes with them on a little mission trip in Mark 4 when he gets in the lake. And I was cheated and listened to some of your sermons, John, on the way in to get a feeling. Good to see you, by the way, my friend. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, the storm... You know, that, that the disciples find themselves in when Jesus is sleeping on the boat. is really their first mission trip that he's taking into this region they don't want to go to. But this one is a place that Jesus is sending them out on a short-term excursion. So in Luke 10, it says, after this, the Lord appointed 70 or 72, depending on the, um, the translation, and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. And then he gives them some instructions that we'll come back to. The very first phrase here in Luke 10 says, after this. Whenever scripture says something like, and just then, or after this, it's probably important to go back and look what this means, because it's in a context. We're not just reading random stories that aren't in some order. So this is placed here in a reason. So what is this? This is like brutal stuff that Jesus says to people. Actually, as I was driving in this morning, I was thinking, you know, God, why do I always have to be the mission speaker that ticks people off? Why do I always have to say the things that make people feel uncomfortable? Why can't I be the guy that travels around and just tells people, like, you're special, don't worry about anything, just watch Netflix and you'll be happy? <laughs> um, because everyone would love me then and we could all just party together. But the testimony of Scripture is at once incredibly comforting and gives us peace and at the very same time calls us to surrender all of our notions of control and planning and everything else and surrender to Jesus 100%, which means we lose everything and we gain everything. That's the upside-down gospel, right? So we lose all of our life, but then we gain it in the end. Great. But that's hard because it goes against our human sensibilities and our logic and our degrees and everything else. At the beginning of Luke, you know, Luke 9, Luke 9, 23 is a verse that a lot of you have heard. He says, because everybody's like, hey, we want to follow you, you know, you're this famous guy. And he says, yeah, cool. If you want to follow me, pick up your cross and get in line. You're probably going to get killed. And they all just go, wait, what? You know, I, I think we're taking over. He's wrong, you know, over and over until they end up do getting killed for it. But in Luke 9, at the end, it's even worse, I feel like, what he said. Because I get the, hey, let's be an enemy of the state thing. Let's, you know, let's rise up or whatever, take the cross. The, the stuff he says in Luke 9, when somebody says, he says, follow me in verse 59. And the man replies, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another says, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Normally I don't preach these verses because I don't really know what they mean. <laughs> because Jesus himself says goodbye to his mother and, you know, he entrusts her to John. And he seems to be pro-family. God doesn't seem to be anti-family. So what does this mean? And it's personal for me because my wife and I chose not to go back to France because, in large part, my dad got very sick. And he was dying, and so we decided to be support to he and my mom. So how do I read this? Do I, do, am I disobeying the Lord? I mean, I've had to wrestle with that. I don't know. Maybe I am. But part of me wonders if what Jesus is really trying to say is anything... Even the best stuff can be an idol that will block you from following me on mission. Everything. Even your family. Even honoring your parents because he's in a, in a culture where family is an idol, even more than ours. Where family is everything, where blood is everything. And so he's in a culture where he says this stuff, it's even worse than when we hear it. And we feel offended by these words. Usually we just brush over this and get to the next thing. It's good to let it sink in. I, I work right next door to focus on the family. It's a great organization in Colorado Springs. Great organization. I know a lot of people who work there. It's great. The problem or danger with a, a, something like Focus on the Family or many other Christian organizations is that you can focus on the family so much that you 
forget about Jesus. Or that you focus on your own whatever, that you forget that Jesus is the center of this story and not us. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, if you think you're the center of the story and that you get to define the terms, like, oh, I'll take care of this stuff first, then I'll do this, then you miss the point. But clearly he doesn't just talk about family because the guy that has a lot of money, he goes, you know what's blocking you, the idol, from following me? It's your money. Go sell that. And the other guys who uh, are, are all about the religious teaching and the rules, he goes, you know what? You, you're all bound up by these rules. You forget that stuff, then you come follow me. And he's always going after the heart idol that prevents somebody. So after this, these brutal teachings, Jesus takes 70 who are willing to join this crazy mission. And he sends them into towns ahead of them. Notice that in a verse, you know, we read these kind of verses, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, a lot when we talk about missions. Rightly so, because the harvest is ready, but we just don't have enough people to send, and that's the truth. If we had, if we had enough people to send around the world that were willing to go live in the hardest places, we would have more Christians around the world, and we would have more peace in the world. But we don't have as many people willing, and Jesus knew even then that there wouldn't be that many willing. And it's very hard. I'm not saying, I, I mean, I'm, frankly, I'm not willing today to move to the Middle East. Today, I mean, I'm willing, but I haven't been, you know, called, and there's a big struggle in my heart about whether I would do that. It's hard. This stuff is really hard. But notice that he doesn't say this about other people. So he doesn't say to the disciples, like, ask the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. He says to the very people he's sending out, this is about to be hard. You better pray for more. He says to the very people who he's sending into the harvest, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, like you guys, you're the few. Now go out in the harvest and pray for more because you're going to get rejected and spit upon and all that kind of stuff. And he says, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. A lot of times when I have conversations with people about missions, they say things like, yeah, but, I would do this stuff, or I would send my kids, or I would whatever, but the world is such a dangerous place. And they're right. The world is super dangerous right now. Not like it wasn't for the disciples who all got killed. <laughs> I always think about that, like, man, if the early Christians only knew how hard it was to be people of peace in such turmoil, what do you mean, like the Roman Empire that was stringing them up and cutting off their heads, that kind of stuff? You know, or, or breaking into their gatherings and accusing them of, uh, of occult behavior and then killing them and those kind of things. It's always been hard. It's always been the people of Jesus who are like lambs among wolves. And Jesus says, don't worry about this over and over. John has reminded you over the last weeks that Jesus' number one command is fear not. Fear not, I'm with you. That's his end command, by the way. Fear not, I'm with you to the end of the age. Because you're about to be missionaries, all of you. Little Jesus is walking around, and it ain't going to be easy. I'm reading a book right now that I would highly recommend to all of you called The Insanity of Obedience. It's a second book. The first one is called The Insanity of God. I think the second one's actually even better. By a guy who uses a pseudonym because he lives in very difficult places and has given his life for a mission around the world. The, the author is Nick Ripkin. It's not his real name. Early on in the book, he says the easiest way to end persecution is to stop the spread of the gospel. So we have less people coming to faith, it gets a lot easier. So we stop going into these countries, 
It's easier. The governments don't care. Other religions don't care. We can just go back to having it nice and easy and feel good about ourselves, and we're good. But Jesus, from the very beginning, says, look, there's trouble in this world you'll have, persecution you're going to have, because you bear my name. It's part of the human experience, but it seems even harder for those who bear his name. Because to gain the whole world, we give of ourselves. We can seemingly gain all this other stuff. And Jesus says, yeah, and then you lose your whole soul. So he sends them out like wolves, like lambs among wolves. And they go and he says, look, here's your mission command. Your mission command is just to walk around and declare that the kingdom of heaven is near. It's not to make a bunch of converts. It wasn't to ask people if they wanted to join the movement. Not yet. That comes. A lot of people come and join the movement. He says, just go tell them that God is real and he's active. Just kind of walk in, and if they are cool with you, great, you stay, and if they're not, fine. But tell them if they don't, aren't cool that God really is real and that they should reconsider, and then keep going. That's basically what he says. He says, if they listen to you, then they're really listening to me. This isn't about you. It's okay. And if they reject you, they're rejecting me. Don't take it personally. And if they're rejecting me, then they're rejecting the God who created them. So listen, it's okay. It's okay if your friends that you witness to make fun of you. It's okay. You're in good company. If you have no resist, if you never, I'm going to say something that's going to make you mad. If you have no resistance ever as a Christian in your life to your faith, then you got to take a hard look in the mirror about what kind of faith you're living. If there's no resistance Maybe some of it's internal resistance, like, I wish I could do this other stuff, and I'm not going to. But some of it's external. And i got to take a, a hard look sometimes, because I fly around to the world, uh, you know, to have these opportunities, and then I can fly back home and get real nice in my suburbs and just sit there and, you know, enjoy my life. And so I have to ask myself daily, am I living as a, a lamb among wolves, really with other people who might not appreciate this kind of stuff, and being a light amongst them, or am I not? Have I secluded myself and protected myself? You know, when I'm back in Mendham, I said earlier that this is such a huge part of our journey, and I still consider this like my home church. I think the reason I do is because I feel this sense of um, I, I don't know, maybe it's a kindred spirit, maybe it's shared experience, maybe it's values, but when I think about Mendham and Mendham's history, this church, how much this church has impacted the world, by how many people in this room have gone to Guatemala and other places, how many people have been sent out to the nations. I mean, I think about my friends Dan and Miriam, who, I mean, look, some of these people are surprises, I would not have thought that Dan Hutton, when he was 15, was going to be a, a strong missionary for the Alliance. But I mean, he always had the goodness inside. He wasn't the easiest child to deal with. Um, but as I had dinner with him a couple of months ago in Colorado when they were going through their missionary training institute, and they're headed to the Middle East, one of the hardest places on earth to go. <clears throat> it's going to get me this one. <clears throat> I go, look. This is it. This is it right here. Rachel went away and said, that's not the same kid that vandalized our house and broke my camera and uh, <laughs> that I lost my mind screaming at it in New York, you know. That, maybe it is the same kid who has, and now you're going to make me even worse. Sorry, I didn't know you guys were here. 
it was all in there, but the obedience or the choice to say, I can see this world through a different lens than other people is a choice to obedience, and man, the fruit is unbelievable. And when I'm with people like them and others who have gone through these doors and I come and hang out with you, I go, these are like-minded kindred spirits. So part of my goal this morning is just to say, God is still doing it. Don't stop. Don't, don't, get, don't enjoy the nice building, although well done, by the way. Um, it's much better than it was. Um, but don't, don't get comfortable in the, in the nice, in the, in the not blue seats and in the, nice, in the nice building, but continue to maintain an edge that would send your best and brightest to places where there's going to be resistance. I, I was just hearing a, a message the other day from a friend who works among Muslims in Spain. Really timid, sweet uh, woman who, she's probably a couple years older than me has lived in Middle East now for about 15 years. She was in the Middle East and now in Spain working with Muslims. And she said, you know, my actual life isn't threatened often. She, she did lose a friend who, who was killed for her faith um, uh, back a few years. But she said, you know, there's, there are different kinds of dangers that we face as Christians. She said, usually I, I uh, describe this in an analogy like bullets and Nutella. So bullets are obvious danger. If somebody's holding a gun to your head, that's dangerous. Uh, it's life or death at that moment. And there are a lot of Christians, by the way, around the world today who wake up and face that kind of danger. For most of my American friends who go and minister among them, it's not as dangerous for them. It's not as dangerous for Dan and Miriam as the people that will come to faith because of their ministry. It's way more dangerous for those folks. They could get back on a plane, but they're... What are they, they going to do? They could leave the country maybe. They're going to be ostracized from their families. It's very difficult. But my friend said, look, so there's obvious danger like that. And then there's danger like Nutella. How many of you like Nutella? Some of you, I love Nutella. My goodness. I didn't know about Nutella until France. And then it's like everywhere, right? And we're giving, now we've, we conditioned Blaine. We let him have too much Nutella as like a three-year-old. And so now he just wants to eat Nutella all the time, right? So he has Nutella sandwiches at lunch. And I was, it's not good for you. <laughs> but the other day, we, I came home, and we, had, uh, we have this knife rack that has like, you know, where you put the knives in the little slots. And four of the knives, I, I pull out one, and I'm like, there's peanut butter all over this knife. And then you see like all the peanut butter jammed down in the crack, and you're like, well, I got... I guess I'm going to have to throw away the knife rack, you know, like, this is not going to work anymore. And then I, there's four knives like that, that he had, like, and the big, like, butcher knife had, like, he had taken that one out, and uh, it had all this Nutella all over it. And I'm like, what is this? He's like, yeah, I just scooped that thing right down in and just lick it right off the, like, the butcher knife? He's like, yeah, you and mom were here, it's fine. Yeah, exactly, you know. So I'm like, Rachel's mad at me then, of course, you know, she's like, how did this happen? I don't know. I wasn't here either. Anyway, the danger with Nutella, other than cutting your face with a butcher knife, which is actual danger, the danger with Nutella is if you eat Nutella all the time for every meal and nothing else, you're going to die eventually of something else. You're going to die of diabetes or obesity or, or whatever. You can't just, we know that you can't just eat Nutella. You can't just eat pizza, although I'd like to do that. You can't just do that all the time because there's health consequences, but that's a slow death. 
That's a slow burn. And for most of us living in this room, the biggest danger that we have is a slow death to our faith. Not a real danger when we pull out and go to the Chester Diner or whatever. Most people aren't, you know, saying, were you at church this morning? I'm going to kill you. We have an opportunity, though, to go to the Chester Diner and just kind of say, isn't Jesus a nice add-on to my life? Doesn't he make me feel good? Cool. Now let's get back to the stuff that is really important to me. And whatever that thing is, is the slow death danger like comfort and money and all these things that we know about, but that we continue to perpetuate because we haven't quite yet grasped the gospel vision of what Jesus is doing and what it really means to give our whole lives to him. And this isn't a guilt trip thing because, man, I struggle with this all the time. But I think the question we've got to wrestle with every single day of our life as a Christian is what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What are his priorities today and am I willing to line myself up with those? And what kind of crazy, costly thing am I going to do or allow my children to do or send my money to do because of that answer? We're going to go really fast over this last section of the, of the story. But there's a second part here where Jesus sends the people out and then he welcomes them back in. In, in verse 17, the 70 return with joy and they say, Lord, even the demons are submitting to us in your name. Like even the crazy supernatural stuff is coming into line. This is cool. I'm glad we signed up for this short-term mission trip. Most of you remember either the first time you went on a trip uh, or the first time you had, I you guys still do those Guatemala Sundays uh, where you celebrate maybe when you come back or something like that. But if, if you, or different kind of missions weeks like that, man, I love those days because I love to hear the testimony of the person who goes for the first time on a cross-cultural experience that blows their mind. The first time they come back, they're all fired up you know, the first time you're getting in the shower and you're like, oh my gosh, hot water, this is wonderful. You know, those kind of things. And, uh, and the next day you are all fired up because you're going to do all these things to, to change the world. And that's what the, the disciples do. They come back and, and the 70 say, man, this is awesome. Like everything is going right. The demons are even submitting. And Jesus, who's not always like, he's gracious, but he's super direct sometimes. <laughs> And it seems kind of mean. He goes, yeah, demons, like, you know the father of demons? I saw Satan fall from the sky. That's how he responds to them. And then he goes, look, yeah, there's all kinds of wonders that can be performed. Be most thankful, in verse 20, that your names are written in heaven. So here's the secret, and here's the benefit to us if we're looking for one. Here's the real benefit of joining God on mission if you need extra incentive the true benefit is when you decide to join and serve and live outside yourself and surrender all to Jesus, you actually come alive. You actually realize who you are and why you're on the planet. You actually find out more about yourself and your own wiring and who you are as a person than you ever did before when you thought you were living for yourself. It's this counter idea in the kingdom that when we give all to Jesus, we actually figure out what it means to be alive. It's, it's the kid that... Joe, he's given me permission to tell his story. Joe, God bless him. Joe um, was a superstar kid that we just sent to Guinea, West Africa. 22 years old, maybe 21, graduating uh, top of his class at Moody Bible Institute, kind of a, a world-renowned Christian you know, institution. He was a missionary kid, grew up in Africa. 
and he knows the ropes. He knows West Africa. So when he came to our intern training weekend, we do these like every three months for people who are going out for a couple months up to two years. And we do cross-cultural training and all that. Like when he comes, he's super cocky. So he gets there and he sees me and he's like, I got this. I know this already. Uh, maybe similar to the 22-year-old that John picked up at the airport <laughs> when I started here. I know what to do. I got, we don't know what we're doing, ever. That's, that's, more, the older you get the realization, nobody has a clue about anything. <laughs> but he, you know, he's got it all figured out. And so when we're doing like the cross-cultural immersion exercises, and I'm yelling at him in French because, you know, I do this like shock and awe thing and to like destabilize them. He already knows French, so he's like telling the guys, it's fine, I know what to do. And then, you know, when we have him eat the gross food, he's like, I eat this all the time in the villages, you know. And I'm like, shut up, Joe. You are killing me, man. Like, just go along with the thing. But he's got it under control. And the other interns are looking at him like, man, he's got inside info. So he goes to Africa. In a month in, he has a crisis. Because his site leader and others are asking him all these deep, invasive, personal questions about why he does these things and what kind of joy he has in his life and what's his time with Jesus like and how does he have joy and peace. And, and he's going, man, I started asking myself questions like, do I even think God's good? Do I even have any joy in this? Or am I just doing this because I like what people think about me when I do these things? He has one point, he said, he went into his room and he cried for like two hours. And he said, I really committed myself maybe for the first time wholeheartedly to Jesus saying, okay, all right, so what do you want me to do? Like what? And he said, God put in his mind this idea of this flag. So this flag was a symbol to Joe because he got it at the, at the end of his graduation, his high school graduation. I don't know if they still do yearbooks, but back when I graduated high school, a few years ago, they did yearbooks and they sign and they say, you know, people would be like, nice knowing you, see you never. I mean, we didn't have Facebook or anything, so um, you, just, you just knew this was the end. Like, this is the only thing I'll have from, from Brittany ever, you know. Or like, we'll be best friends forever, can't wait for summer, whatever, you know. Uh, but this was his flag, it was like his yearbook, and they all had written stuff like, Joe, you're the best, Joe, you know, uh, all-star student, Joe, chaplain of our school, and all these things. And he hung it up on his wall ever since graduation. It had gone with him for four years through college. And whenever he was feeling lonely or homesick, whatever, he'd look at the flag and go, I'm cool, I got it. And he realized at that moment that the flag for him represented the idol that would prevent him from realizing that maybe the secret of mission is just to be thankful that we're invited to this party and that our names are written in the book. So he had a funeral ceremony for the flag. So he got his buddies together. It's kind of weird, but uh, like a month or two ago, he, and actually in the Alliance Life magazine, he tells this story this month. So if you subscribe to the denominational magazine, I don't know how many of you do, but if you do, um, there's a, uh, a story. Joe, Joe writes the, the, and tells this story. And they buried the flag, and, and, and he said to me, look, what I realized, because when I was doing my debrief with him, when I had it scheduled, I was kind of like, How's this going to go? I don't know how his time was. What kind of tone is he going to have? And in his debrief, he said, you know, Tim, what I'm realizing is that if the gospel of Jesus isn't enough for me at every circumstance, then it's not a gospel worth sharing. 
That if the gospel isn't enough, if I'm a janitor or a behind-the-scenes person that no one's given credit for or running the sound and without, you know, these guys, this wouldn't sound very good and all that kind of stuff, but you don't get the credit for that. If I, if I couldn't be that guy and the gospel be enough, then maybe, maybe this isn't enough for me. And he said, but it is, and I'm willing to do whatever now. And so now he's getting it. So the beauty of mission is that the, the 70 return and Jesus goes, look, part of this was to go announce the kingdom and part of this was just for you. It was just for you to figure out who I am and what this means and to be thankful. And if you don't get anything else, maybe you just walk away going, okay, thank you. That I'm a part of this and what does it mean? But the, the very last thought very quickly this morning is this. Jesus at the end says this awesome verse. He turned to his disciples and said privately, so maybe just to the 12 this time and not to the 70, blessed are the eyes that get to see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but they didn't see it. They wanted to hear these things and they didn't hear it. I wonder how many times Jesus is looking at us now and going, you know how many people would love to be alive right now? to see the gospel in more countries around the world than ever before, to see more movement of the kingdom exploding around the globe than ever before, to have a time when everybody gets to be a priest, we don't have to wait for the priest, to have a time where there are little prophets running around and doing all this crazy stuff for the kingdom. When you turn on the TV or the radio, all you hear is be afraid, hunker down, and hate everyone else. Uh, even the people that are like you hate them too because we want to polarize everything. And what Jesus is saying is, this is actually an amazing time to be alive. He's telling that to his disciples, but it's still true for us today. The different gospel story, and I'll end with this, is that the, the truth is, there is more going on than you know. Most of the vision that we have as Americans, and I know this because it's the vision I have until I talk to my friends who actually live somewhere else or I go and visit them, is that the gospel is exploding in the two-thirds part of the world. The gospel is exploding in Asia and in Africa. There are more Christians alive today than ever before. And so even though it's an uncertain time for us and it makes us nervous, this is also a brilliant time to be alive. If we're willing to see with eyes of the kingdom and hear messages of the kingdom that aren't always through a self-centered lens. And that's the big challenge for us as Americans. I told this story too at the Life Conference. Man, you can come, but I'm going to tell it again. I didn't tell it first. I feel like I should. Because it illustrates the fact that even in the parts of the world that we think are dangerous and awful, God is already at work by himself, and he's calling us there. There's a story of this um, woman named Galia, and Galia uh, is from a difficult part of the world where not many people are Christians, and Galia um, is living there, and her best friend leaves. Her best friend moves away, and she's struggling with depression. She's a young woman. She's struggling with depression, and with her life in general, her best friend had moved away, and she didn't know what to do, and so one day it came to the end, and she decided to take her own life. So she went to this outside the town, this river that a lot of people go to uh, in, this, in this region, kind of like jumping off a bridge, and she went to this place and threw herself in the river. 
And Galia had two hands grab her shoulders and pull her back out onto the shore. She looked around and there's nobody there. So she's like, well, that was weird. But her circumstances hadn't changed, so she threw herself in a second time. And a second time, somebody grabbed her out of the river. This is a true story. Actually, my friend Amy just sat with Galia last month. So this is a true story. I'm not making this up. And so Galia's sitting on the side of the river. Nobody's around. And believe it or not, a third time she throws herself in. And a third time she's pulled out of the river. She's set on the bank. So now she is too freaked out to throw herself back in. And she's like, well, maybe I have a purpose or something. I don't know. She starts walking back. She gets home. And her mom runs out of the house. She's got to be wondering why Golly is all wet. I don't know that part of the story. I wish I did. But she says, Golly, you're never going to believe this, but your best friend just moved back into town. They've been gone for a year and a half. They're here. While her friend was gone, Galia was in her room. And during that time of darkness, had tuned into Christian radio stations. Now, you know, say what you want about different methods, but God is big. And she's listening to th this Christian radio, and she doesn't know what it means. She doesn't even know who Jesus is that they're talking about. But the, the message she would hear, hear every night was, Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. Every night before she went to bed. She didn't know what it was, and it clearly wasn't enough because she didn't have somebody connect the dots for her, and she ended up, you know, wanting to take her own life. So she sees her best friend. Her friend walks up to her, and she goes, gives her a big hug, says, Galia, I'm so glad to see you. I just have one thing to say first. Jesus loves you and gave himself for you. And Galia said, that's weird. That's what I've been hearing on the radio. And she goes, yeah, I moved away, and in that moving, I met somebody who knew Jesus, and now we're followers of Jesus, and Gali and her whole family uh, accepted Christ. Now, in that country, there's probably 500 believers, maybe 1,000 believers. So when four people come to faith, it's a big, big win. It's a big deal. And Gali and her whole family come to faith. Now, here's the point of the story, twofold. Number one, sometimes the very things that we think are the most terrifying, people on the move and all this instability, are the very things that God is using to draw people to himself. So maybe we have eyes to see and ears to hear about that. It's not a political statement. That's a kingdom statement. This isn't all just easy black and white as Christians. The second thing is this, that even in the places that we're not yet, we're not willing to go, God's still at work. And he's drawing people like Galia to himself. And he's drawing us in this very room in Mendham, New Jersey, to himself today again. And so my challenge and invitation to you is to say yes again to the deep work of, of God. And to be thankful that your name, if you followed him already, is written. And maybe today's your day to say, all right, I'll follow that kind of Jesus and have your name written. And then for some of you to say, if that's true, then what does it mean to go all in? Let's sing and then I'll pray for you.